Hello, I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, April 7th, 2016, and this is episode 21 of Garbage. Alright guys, we don't have anything to talk about this episode, so <laughs> you're in for a treat. <laughs> yeah, we don't really... There's not a lot of OpenBSD things going on uh, post-release, I guess. Yeah, I, I think the things that are going on are above my head, and I didn't have time to research stuff, so I don't want to do uh, anything in injustice here. So we're going to complain about things, which is what we do when we don't have anything to talk about. Yeah, sounds about right. Um, just a couple notes. I guess the things that were kind of interesting to me uh, going on in OpenBSD, there was um, a diff sent to tech to make some improvements for VMM, and basically it was a diff that was trying to address a few different things. Um, I guess VMD right now is making use of um, IOCTLs, to get memory, and uh, I guess there's a couple problems with that that they're trying to fix. And basically, so like, um, it's slow. If you need multiple pages, you have to make multiple calls and all this kind of stuff. And um, really, you want like um, your maximum data size for VMD to be kind of controlled by what the system has set. And I don't think that that was really happening now. So. There was a diff sent out that basically um, makes use of MMAP instead of the IOCTLs for getting memory. And then, of course, there's like um, a management piece uh, between the guest and the host for managing that. That's uh, kind of like a lightweight layer inside there. And in doing so, obviously, it's much faster and uh, will make VMD adhere to your limits and all that kind of stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool. I'm going to be trying it out pretty soon here. There's also some um, UVM bits in there that are changed and updated. I, I think there was a problem in there, but I can't remember what it was um, to speak about it. But I'm hoping to see some pretty significant improvements with this diff and uh, kind of see where everything pans out. Of course, um, just to be clear, um, the kernel is, doesn't have the um, virtualization enabled VMM isn't enabled by default yet I don't think so you have to build your own kernel and um, you'd have to you know apply this diff and patch your own stuff if you wanted to try it that's all over my head um, another thing that uh, went in was like the first chunk of the multi-touch stuff that's going into WS cons nice um, I can't remember the guy's name I'm uh, forgetting it right now but um, he committed the like first part of it that kind of changes over the stuff that's already in there to start passing the multi-touch data into WS cons from the various drivers that support it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not doing anything with it yet. So at some point, um, he will commit the other parts of that, which will actually start passing that stuff through to like um, X11, and I think he has like written. Um, an entirely new driver that does a lot of the multi-touch processing in the kernel, mm -hmm. which I was um, initially against because we already have like the synaptics driver for Xorg that does all that stuff for you and has lots of like weird corner cases that have built up over the years that um, maybe his driver is not going to have. And um, I don't know, to me it just seems weird to have all that stuff in the kernel because nothing is using it other than X11. It's not like you're doing multi-touch gestures on the console. Mm -hmm. 
But um, yeah, so he's working on that. So um, everyone, like a bunch of other people are in support of it. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that stuff going in so that um, we can start doing better multi-touch stuff in X because the drivers that the ones that I've written, at least that support many fingers are only able to pass one finger of data into Mm. X. Yeah. It's strange when you go between a laptop and like a desktop machine. I sit at a a computer all day long at work and, Mm -hmm. you know, I make use of the mouse and stuff. And I think maybe there's similar type things because you have the scroll wheel and stuff. You don't have to do the same gestures, but on a laptop, you're pretty impaired without it. Yeah. The thing that, um, cause I mean, like OpenBSD right now supports two finger scrolling and the way that that works is kind of a hack. Um, it's because WS cons can only deal with one finger's worth of data as far as movement. All it's doing is passing that one finger of movement through, but then saying that there's another finger that's touching the trackpad. Mm -hmm. And so anytime the synaptics driver sees that a finger is moving while another finger is touching the pad, um, it, it, treats it as scrolling but it doesn't know like the coordinates of that other finger and then if you start if you start moving that finger that was just sitting there and then stop moving the other finger without lifting it um it gets confused because um it's only reading the coordinates of the one finger that's not moving and then the thing that i do on my macbook which um OS X has always supported is I leave my thumb on the trackpad mm-hmm. and then I move um, the cursor with my finger and then I just um, tap down with my thumb to click the trackpad. Mm-hmm. And then, so if you want to like click and drag something, you can do that. But the way that the multi touch stuff is right now with OpenBSD, you can't do that because as soon as you put your thumb on the trackpad, um, it thinks that you're trying to scroll instead of moving the cursor around. So hopefully once the like this stuff is figured out where it's passing the coordinates of both fingers, it will be able to like the kernel driver I guess would be able to say if you're if there's a finger on the bottom like, I don't know, fifteen percent of the trackpad and it's not really moving, consider that a thumb that's not scrolling mm-hmm. and then basically ignore it and only like use it when you're actually clicking on the button nice yeah so that stuff might take a while to uh all get committed and changed over but i guess it's coming yeah i think um drivers and virtualization and 4k uh block size support are all nifty things but really i've just had a terrible week and i want to complain about everything Let's hear it, brother. I I mean, it it hasn't been a terrible week, honestly. It's actually been a pretty good week, but um, it was a little bit of an affirmation and a little bit of like kind of like defending my stance on certain things. I have a we we love web frameworks, um, and my new boss is like a PHP guy and a C sharp .NET guy, and. Uh, so I've been kind of having some fun introducing um, this AngularJS with H- like HTML pages uh, that talks JSON to a Go application to him. And he is like baffled and amazed at the same time because the first thing is, is the, the architecture of the web application is just nothing he's used to. And I get it. Like 
for 10 years, all I wrote was like um, Ruby templates and Python templates that were all like rendered and transformed on the server. And then they shoot back a stream of HTML to the client. And I did XSLT, I did classic ASP, I did ASP.NET. I have done a lot of different things and I I know the deficiencies of them well enough to put them out of my mind and not talk about them anymore and remove them from my resume. And so when I heard this guy start to talk about it, I was a little nervous. And anyway, a long time ago, when I made that, that jump from like uh, server rendered content to a static HTML page with some JavaScript that um, binds data and merges in uh, JSON responses from a server, it was really hard to get my head around. Uh, the change to the application, the change to the presentation, and um, how I was going to structure those applications, what worked best. Um, I did a lot of things wrong the first time, and then I was like, okay, well, I need to do something else. I built stuff with Angular. I built stuff with Riot. And um, anyway, I'm, I'm showing this all to him, and he gets, like, really excited about it. And the first thing he finds is Riot.js. And... He didn't like call it a micro framework, and he didn't um, like pick on it for being uh, not delicious or whatever those other uh, JavaScript libraries were. He went home and he read it and he tried it out, and he came in and he's just like, "I'm baffled with how um, like the routing works and the data binding works and how simple it is, and it just it just goes." And I said, "Yeah, it's fantastic." And um, so then I, he's like, well, what do you use for the application side? And I said, well, the application really needs to serve two purposes. The first part is, is it needs to serve up the static HTML pages um, back to the browser. And then you have um, an application side. And this was like a point of, uh, what's the word? It was a point of contention, maybe, I don't know, between a contractor and I when we built this application originally. And he said... Well, the router needs to do this and the on the web layer and then the router on the app needs to do this differently and I argued with him. I said, "No, no, no, no." You, and he wanted to like bring in another router for the application side and I said, "Just serve back static HTML pages and point them at a different URL and we'll, you know, route them into the AT, uh the API so that they get passed off to a handler." And he argued with me tooth and nail about this stuff, and of course, I've done the entire application again the right way, and it all works amazingly fast. Um, but anyway, I go to show my new boss this, and he's really impressed that, you know, basically the way this mechanism works is you um, read a config, you pull out a like a static content directory, and um, you create a route to handle that, and you tell um, Go's HTTP handler that this is a, a static file server, and it will just serve up static files for you. You don't have to think about it. Then you build a, a bunch of uh, HTTP handlers, which are basically um, a URL to match, and then an HTTP handler function that you implement to handle that particular route when it matches. And... Um, so I build a bunch of things like API slash credentials slash get, and I hand that off to the um, credential handler. And um, 
I've built a whole bunch of stuff around this now too, where my handlers are wrapped in a middleware that handles a bunch of stuff like reading cookies and authenticating and validating roles and all this other kind of stuff. So I'm showing them all this stuff and I'm like, here's your map of roles. This kind of defines what the um, application does. Uh, here's your map of routes. This kind of defines what the application does. Here's all your handlers, the data layers over here, and this is basically it. And he's like, what? This is crazy. And he didn't like have a strong opinion for it, and he didn't have a strong opinion against it, and he, I think he was just digesting stuff. Um, so he said, well, let me see how these uh, HTML templates work. And the way we're doing this in our application is we have um, a Riot tag, and it's basically the way this works for us is you have a bunch of HTML, and then underneath that HTML you have some JavaScript, and in our case, we do something like on mount, go get the data by calling to, into this URL. And if you get a good response back, we call self.update or riot.update with the data that came back from the application. And in the HTML, you have a little bit of um, markup in there to bind the data that came back. And once you're done with this tag, you run the riot compiler on it and it uh, dumps out a piece of JavaScript to you. So when you initially load the page, you call into the, um, into the static server, it returns back the index page, and it says, okay, what route is this particular client on? And if they were on the credential page, it would say, okay, go get credential.js and mount it, and it mounts the client JS, and then it goes and gets the data for that particular page. And this all happens really, really fast. Um, I mean, really, the round trip times are like a couple milliseconds. And, um, and, and that was one of the first things that my boss questioned is like, well, how fast does this happen? And then so he clicked on a link, and it unmounted the credential page. It pulled up a machine page. Uh, by going and getting the machine.js. It loaded that, um, called into the application server, and got back a bunch of JSON and rendered it in the page. And he said, well, this has to be slower than if I just would have called machine on the server, and it would have uh, merged the data together in the application and returned it back. And so I said, maybe that's a fair point. And... Um, and in the past, that was like one of my sticking points too. But it turns out, in this case anyway, um, it's a little bit less work on the server, and the performance, even with two round trips, is almost negligible in this case, because serving static content is ridiculously fast. So to the mm -hmm. point where even with Go's um, maybe not as performant JSON encoding, uh, it was still faster to make two calls. So anyway, uh, I wanted to talk about that web framework in a little bit more detail and uh, just say that it was great to be validated by someone who's worked in ASP.NET and um, C Sharp and all those other tools, uh, Microsoft tools, and have them go, yes, this really makes sense, and not try and make a compelling argument against it. It was actually a very healthy conversation and a very good uh, dialogue about application structure. He was really uh, happy with it. Cool. So you're moving forward with uh, doing
doing everything with your framework? Yeah, it seems that way. Um, I don't think there's much choice, really. <laughs> there's a little bit too much inertia now. Um, but he didn't have any objections. There was no like, whoa, why did we go down this path without talking to anybody and all that kind of stuff. So, Is there any uh, pushback as far as you being the only one that knows it? No, there was no talk of that. And And I think really once he saw the simplicity of the application, he was like, well, it's really straightforward. Um, he's like, I could have, you know, the Salesforce developer look at this and build stuff. And I said, yep, you can. And he has built stuff for this and it makes perfect sense to him. And he asked about getting the environment set up and he said, how do we do builds and all that kind of stuff? And I said, it's really easy. And, uh, you know, it doesn't require a bunch of JavaScript node package modules and all this other kind of stuff. You just, uh, run the riot command on the tags in a in a single folder and you zip up the thing and you send it out to the server and you unzip it and voila there's your application it just works then mm -hmm. he really liked that um he said you know basically anybody who can write html and anybody who can write css and anybody who can write javascript can work on this i said exactly i did you a favor <laughs> by using a lightweight web framework because mm -hmm. now we don't need somebody who has like angular 2.0 experience or whatever their second version is yeah and to come in here and be able to do this. So seems to be quite, quite good, I guess, in the feedback department. Uh, actually, I have a rant, so I will go on one too. All right, let's hear it. So um, some background information. I make an iOS app called Endless. It is a web browser. Um, and it basically implements a lot of the things that, uh, for those that remember our show about um, us talking about our web uh, browser setups, it basically implements the things that I use in Firefox, which is like the um, self-destructing cookies, where like uh, it'll accept all the cookies for the website that you're on, but then as soon as you navigate away from it, after a short time, it deletes all those cookies unless you have them whitelisted. Mm -hmm. So you basically don't accumulate um, all these cookies from sites that you don't care about. And it in integrates um, HTTPS everywhere and some other privacy and security features that I want in a web browser. Um, so I make that web browser. It's on the App Store, but it's open source. It's on GitHub. I released it on GitHub more or less just to make it open source so you could see what it's doing and you could compile it and run it on your own phone if you didn't want to download the version from the App Store. Mm -hmm. um, but I put a license on it that was basically um, saying that you can do whatever you want with the source code as far as um, modifying it and redistributing it, but you can't redistribute binaries of the code. And my reasoning behind that was that I didn't want someone just taking the open source code, compiling it, changing the name on or changing the name on it, compiling it, and then putting it up on the app store for like a dollar ninety nine and then, you know, doing some kind of marketing around it where they basically it becomes popular a whole bunch and then they make a whole bunch of money for doing absolutely nothing. And right. um so I don't want that to happen because I've had a similar situation before where someone tried to make a whole bunch of money off of something that I made that they contributed absolutely nothing to. And I guess this goes back to like that whole discussion about BSD versus um, GPL. Right. But I'm not 
you know, I don't care about people making money off of something that I make if they are like putting enough, putting a bunch of work into it and like extending it. Um, I mean, I guess somebody could sell a version of OpenBSD if they, you know, did something to it, but realistically it doesn't make sense for anyone to sell OpenBSD because everyone could just go download the source code. Right. Well, with the App Store, like, most people aren't going to do that, so they're just going to pay whatever it is to get this app. So anyway, so this code has been on um, GitHub for a while. Nobody has submitted any uh, patches or pull requests or anything, and um, it only has, like, a few reviews on the App Store. It's not very popular, but I use it, so I figured I'd put it out there for anybody else to use. So that is my browser called Endless. And so yesterday, somebody from the Tor project approached, uh, emailed me and said that they, um, well, they said a bunch of things, but they basically, they also pointed me to this app on the app store called the onion browser. And it is basically my endless browser with Tor built into it. So, um, I guess they've added the functionality of being able to browse Tor mm -hmm. through my app. Except they didn't really do any of the work because all of the work that they did was uh, done by a guy, uh, Mike Tegas, who has had an app on the App Store called Onion Browser. So the new one that this guy is making is called The Onion Browser, and the app that's been in the App Store forever is just called Onion Browser. <laughs> so this guy, Mike, he's been uh, releasing this Onion Browser app for years. Um, it's a very simple um, app as far as the web browsing functionality, but he did all the hard work to get um, Tor compiled on, you know, the ARM platform or whatever, and then linked into this app so that you can browse through Tor through an iOS app. Mm -hmm. And um, naturally, he made all of his code open source so that you could verify what it's doing and all that. Um, so this guy that is making this new app called The Onion Browser is basically taking these two open source code bases, mashing them together, and then making a new app out of it. Um, and if you go to like his GitHub page, he has removed all of the Git uh, like commit history from everything that I've done. So like his first commit, which um, was not that long ago, but um, it's you know the initial commit, and it's basically importing all of the code that I've written. Hmm. You can't do that. Well, so. This, the, the old Onion Browser app um, is in the App Store for $0.99. Cents. So if you want to use Tor, you know, um, support the guy that did all this work and pay him a dollar or whatever. Um, the new app is in the App Store for free. So um, I thought it was kind of shitty that this guy is doing this and basically sidestepping Mike, um, who was trying to make a dollar out of his app for his work. And now there's a free version that takes exactly the same code puts it in a nicer interface, which is all of the code that I've written. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I can't really complain because um, no one's making money off of my work, but they're like marketing it as a new web browser. <laughs> um, and so it's only if you go like into the settings and then the about page that you'll see um, my copyright and stuff in there. So like if you go to the GitHub page for his project, it has a whole new logo and um, he stripped out, he removed my, so this is the other part, um, individual files in my endless, uh, code base, some of them had a BSD license, 
because when I first started the project, it had a BSD license. And then I, um, got worried about someone taking my work and making money off of it. So I created this proprietary license based on that. So I put that proprietary license in a license file in the root directory of the, um, of the repo. Mm-hmm. So like in GitHub, that's pretty common. You just, the first page that you see when you go to it has that license there and it's, it's the license for the project. So that file, um, for a long time has said, you know, you can't redistribute binaries. Some of the, some of the individual files in the, in my tree still had the old BSD license on it. And then it was in like September of last year when I realized that some of those files still had that. And I stripped out the license, uh, text out of every file and just said, copyright Joshua Stein, uh, see the license file for licensing information. So if you go to this guy's um, GitHub repo, that license file, he has uh, deleted it and made his own, which basically says uh, the Onion browser is copyright, whatever his name is, um, and it's the whole thing is released under uh, uh, BSD or ISC license. So all of the files that are in his repo still that I have written, say, refer to the license file for licensing information. And when you go to that file, it says it's copyright him and it's the, it's a free, freely available license. So if nothing else, it's confusing. Uh, at worst, it's relicensing all of the code that I've written under a more permissive license that I did not intend for it to be. Yeah, that's kind of bad because somebody else could take that now and then do something else with it, and they might sell it for something and start making big profit or something like that. Right. Um, so I basically opened a, a issue on this guy's GitHub uh, repo because he has no email address anywhere, um, just stating all of this and saying that it's not okay what he's doing. And since so much of his his app is my code, um, he's going to have to end up uh, taking it out of the App Store which I kind of feel bad about because he's like done some changes to it. But on the other hand, like you can't just take someone's work and not pay attention to the licensing terms. So he, he never reached out and tried to collaborate with you either. That's the other, well, that's part. the other thing. It's like, th- yeah, there was never any attempt to reach out. There's never any attempt to say, Hey, I just released this app. It's based on your code. You know, take a look at it. There was never like a pull request from him saying, Hey, can we, you know, I'd like to integrate um, Tor functionality into your browser uh, it was just, you know, him doing whatever he wanted on his own and then, you know, trying to like, uh, more or less take credit for the whole thing. Like, Hey, this is my new project. Uh, this is my browser. Yeah. So the, the guy from Tor that I was emailing back and forth kind of said the same thing, like that I think you and I have complained about, um, in previous episodes that like, this seems to be a common thing with younger people, maybe that, um, they want to like, be the star of the show. Nobody wants to just contribute a patch to a project and like, you know, everybody runs that one version. Everyone wants to come up with their own version and say like, Hey, mine's better. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I'm kind of conflicted because I, you know, I want to contribute this code to the Tor project so that they can make a web browser that, uh, is basically the iOS equivalent of the Tor browser bundle mm-hmm. that they make with Firefox for desktops. Um, but that would mean relicensing my code in something, uh, open, which I'm okay with if Tor uses it, but then it's like, well, if I'm doing that, then why don't I just give this guy my code and he can make his own app too. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm just kind of conflicted about it and 
thought I would uh, talk about it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there are a lot of different licenses for a lot of different types of scenarios, and I think um, you know people are really passionate about the GPL version three and GPL version two. And I hear a lot about Apache, and I hear about uh, the BSD licenses, and you will get people really animated about all of them. But what it really boils down to is you spent time working on something, and you license it a certain way for a reason. And it doesn't mean that you can't change the license at some point in time, but what it does mean is no matter what, if it's the right thing or you know, you change your mind or all that stuff, uh, what it, what it does mean is that somebody can't come along and change it whenever they feel like, hey, here's some cool code I want to go do my own thing with. I'm going to rip it out and do whatever I feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems like all of the open source licenses are um, kind of geared around you can't take credit for my work. Right. Um, and then, like, obviously ones like GPL say you have to release the changes for all of... Uh, you have to release the code for all of your changes. But in a scenario like this, I don't care about the code because um, somebody doesn't even have to really change anything. They can just take what I've done and then uh, repackage it and put it on the app store and make a bunch of money. Right. Um, so it's like you you almost need a license that says, like, don't be an asshole. Um, and, you know, don't. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know how to, how to put it. I guess some people listening to this might say, well, then just don't put your code on GitHub. Like, don't make it open source if you don't want people uh, taking it and doing whatever they want with it. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I do want people to do whatever they want with it for themselves. I just don't want them putting it in binary form, which is why I made the license that way. I don't want them putting it on the App Store. But I'm all for, you know, whoever wants it, download the code, look at it, change it, do whatever you want, put it on your own phone. Um, just don't put it on the app store. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm waiting for this guy to reply and see, uh, if he's even going to reply at all. Um, interesting stuff. It's really conflicting. Anytime you put the source code for something you do on the internet, because one, there's feedback. People saying, like, you need to fix this bug. Um, two, there's people taking it and doing other things with it. And you may or may not uh, like what they, what they do with your particular uh, work. You know, they might be using it for something evil when you were like, oh, my gosh, that's never what this was intended for. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it, and it could be like what you're talking about, where somebody takes your idea and then starts... Um, you know, a huge company from it and they're very successful and you say, well, man, that was kind of a silly thing, but um, at the same time, you know, you licensed it in such a way that they can do this and you kind of have to live with that. Yeah. I guess my fear of this comes from, uh, I used to have a website called goingtorain.com mm-hmm. and you just went to the website and in, in like a big font, it would just say yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> and it used like IP geolocation to know where you were and then yeah. automatically look up your weather so that it was all there as soon as you open it. Because I hated that like when you would go to like weather.com, you'd have to tell it your zip code or whatever. Right. And it's like, you know, all these porn sites know exactly what neighborhood you're in. Like right. there's no reason why I have to type this in. 
so anyway, so I made that site. It was uh, kind of popular. A lot of people went to it. And um, this like Chinese company made an iPhone app that was nothing more than a web browser that opened to that page. And they put it in the app store for like 99 cents and people were buying it. And so once I found out about this, I'm like, what the hell? You guys have done literally nothing. You never contacted me. Um, you're making money off of what is essentially a bookmark going to my website. So I, um, they were, their app was, uh, it had like a unique user agent string. So I just blocked that user agent, which made the app, uh, effectively useless. But it just got me so pissed off that like somebody would do that. And so I guess that's where my fear comes from of somebody doing this with, uh, endless. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe I should just not open source this stuff. I don't know. Browsers are such a hot topic. Like, why is there always so much contention around browsers? <laughs> I don't you know, know what I mean? But like what you were saying about um, you, you, know, you might not always like what people want to do with your code. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reminded of like the IP filter thing where yeah. we pulled IP filter out of OpenBSD because uh, upon further inspection, or was it that we like read the license differently or that he changed the license? I don't remember. But the license basically said that you couldn't do certain things with the with the code, mm -hmm. and um, that went against what OpenBSD requires to be a part of the kernel, which is that <clears throat> it's open to everyone and you can do whatever you want with it in, in any country that uh, can get a hold of it. Um, and so we ripped that out and then started on PF. Which is far better, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. But... I don't know. I guess that's the similar situation where um, that I'm in, and that I don't feel comfortable with people doing whatever they want with this particular piece of code. Yeah. Um, so if you had to guess, I mean, something like that, like a web browser. How long did it take you to write something like that? I mean, I've been working on um, on Endless since uh, 2014, I think. Okay. Um, I'm just looking at the GitHub history now. I mean, there's, uh, 219 commits since 2014, I think. So, I mean, you have a couple years worth of, um, blood, sweat, and tears in this. You have a couple hundred commits. So maybe you're doing, I don't know, what is it? A few thousand lines of code? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of files cause it, it does a lot more than a normal web browser. And if you were going to take that source code and sell it to somebody and they were going to incorporate it into a product, I mean, you're probably talking about, what, $10,000, $20,000 worth of sweat equity into something like that, right? Sure. I mean, by today's developer rates for something like that, it's it's a fair chunk of change. And um, anyway, I guess where I was going with this is you put you put something of value, like right out there that people can see, and you're very clear about... Um, you know, what your intentions are with it, all they have to do is say like, hey, um, I want to I wanna do this certain thing with this thing. I'm going to charge two bucks for it if that's cool with you, and I'll give you a buck back. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, people, the problem is, is that people are doing corrupt things with it. I mean, it, it's just, you know, they say, oh, well, somebody open source to this, so I can go do whatever I want with it. And that's really like, some things are licensed that way. Uh, and you can do exactly what whatever you want with it. And then there's uh, the other side of this coin where people are licensing things and getting patents on things 
that are not new, are not novel, and they shouldn't be having any kind of ownership on or shouldn't have any kind of like uh, ownership over. So I think it's um, it's interesting to see people's really just kind of misappreciation for what they have in front of them. Um, it's becoming too much of a understated commodity, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if he would have reached out to me at all and said, like, hey, I'm interested in integrating Tor into this, I could have said, oh, I, you know, I'd like that too. Let's, you know, code it up and I'll merge it. Or, uh, you know, I don't think that's a good direction for it. You're welcome to fork it and make your own version. But I didn't even get that opportunity. Um, And then, uh, you know, like, I was hoping that in a future version I could have, like, an in-app purchase where you could just, you know, tip me a dollar or whatever, uh, even though the app would still be free. Um, And if I put that in a future version, but his app is always out there in the App Store for free, um, you know, maybe somebody doesn't want to do that. I don't know. Or maybe there would be confusion over who wrote what. Um, I mean, that's happened too, where someone's ripped off the, uh, the design of my homepage one time and somebody went to it and they were like, wait, did you copy him or did he copy you? And I was like, what the hell? Like that guy just totally ripped off my code. Yeah. Or you get blamed for someone else's. So if, is his, if his Tor browser, uh, does something and somebody says, oh my gosh, you brought down my Apple whatever phone and, um, then they come hunting you down. They're like, you wrote this code, <laughs> which has mm-hmm. happened in the not-too-distant future. So, yeah, I mean, it can have all sorts of nasty ramifications. Yep. And I guess, I mean, like I said, if if Tor, if the Tor project wants to make an official Tor browser and it's based off of my code, um, I'd be pretty happy about that. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know why it's different that this guy is making the same thing, but I'm not happy about it. I don't know. I guess it's because I feel like the Tor project would be giving me more credit than this guy is. Yeah. It just needs to be done the right way. That's the I think that's the thing in the ecosystem we really need to iron out is just understanding um, these different layers of here's this project that I've given my time and efforts to and someone saying, here's what I want from it and need from it. Can we work together? And understanding kind of where the unwritten rules or unwritten um, guidelines fall and all of that, mm-hmm. as far as getting diffs in versus diffs falling on the floor versus you need to fix this versus we want to rip this out and do something complete with it. I, I heard um, in the industry, um, there was a guy who I heard about we'll just talk about all this like very, very vaguely. But there was a, a guy who was like, Hey, I like your piece of software. Um, uh, I would like to use that in my company. Uh, but I want the source code for it. And they said, no way we're not selling you the source code for this. And, but what we will do is we will give you three developers and we will let you develop your version for X amount of time. And so he did, uh, he got these three developers from the company who had this particular piece of software and, uh, built it, huge, big thing, making the company lots of money. And uh, the guy came to him a little while later and he said, hey, I'll sell you the source code. He said, how much? And he bought it. So why why doesn't that same model apply in open source? You have exactly the same thing. Someone writes software. Uh, someone else wants the source code. They want to do something with it. You know 
that that software has a certain value to you as the consumer and the value uh, and then the author of that software put a certain amount of time and effort into it and generally if you're trying to buy that software um, he is going to benefit greatly from it because you're going to make a ton of money from it and he's going to get out of it far more than he put into it so everybody wins why doesn't the same exact model happen in the open source world <laughs> it's 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 like we're a corrupt backwards like <laughs> swindling bunch of thieves here sometimes it feels like yeah yeah i think that's just it's just down to like uh manners ethics maybe yeah um it's like just because the code is there and you can see it and the license says that you can modify it and do all that stuff like you know you should still have some decency as far as you know trying to upstream your patches contacting the maintainer um you know not forking unless you have to um stuff yeah. like that yeah how do we instill that into people we need to get more people listening to the podcast who can weigh in and talk about that kind of stuff and their experiences yeah i was actually while i was uh stewing about this last night i was thinking that um github is partially to blame for this mm -hmm. um just because i'm assigning blame to everyone <laughs> but like, you know, back in the day, if I had a project like this and it was on, I don't know, SourceForge and I had like a project web page for it, um, I had the CVS tree cause we all used CVS back then, um, and that kind of stuff. And you wanted to make a change to it. You would pull the CVS tree down, uh, make a change and then, uh, email the patch to me and I would commit it. And then if you did that enough times, I'd give you commit access to the tree. Right. Um, but like, if you, if this guy wanted to do the same thing, uh, that he did on GitHub, he would have to like, you know, create a SourceForge project and then upload all of the code and set up a new project page and like all this other stuff that would be way harder than the way it is now in, in GitHub where you literally just click one button that says fork. Right. And then it, it puts all the code in your tree and you can, uh, you know, make it so easy to pretend like you wrote everything. Um, mm. and then just change the readme so that it looks, you know, it has your fancy logo on it and all that. So I don't know. Maybe that's, uh, contributing to this culture of like, oh, well, I'm just gonna, uh, take what you did and, and start my own version because I, I don't, you know, I don't want to give you the code that I, that I wrote, I want, I want some credit for it because I made this one little change. So I'm going to, uh, start, you know, playing in my corner over here and right. see if I can get your users to start using my version instead. So yeah, it's GitHub's fault. Everything is GitHub's fault. Damn kids these days. Off my lawn. We should, we should all just go back to CVS. Is there a CVS hub? I'm going to make that. We need to make that. With the uh, Comic Sans font. <laughs> oh, CVSHub.com is for sale. <gasps> Buy now, right. $3,695. All we need now is an Android app and an iOS app, and we're golden. Well, it can't be with CVS Hub. You'd have to make like a BlackBerry app and some sort of text Nokia message, text messaging Symbian. interface. <laughs> you get a text message every time somebody checks in code yeah. that breaks the tree. <laughs> hmm. We could uh. talk to a domain expert. Hurry, once it's sold, this opportunity will be gone. I don't think anyone is trying to buy cvshub.com. 
Oh, now now that we've talked about it, it'll disappear. Yeah. Um, well, we kind of hinted a little while ago about um, a couple things, and I and I did want to give a shout out to uh, our our listeners because you guys re- replied back um, in email and a, a few other mechanisms to tell us like about uh, WebKit and why uh, QT5 was having issues with WebKit and how that uh, whole thing just smashed together and was terrible. So thank you for replying to to us about that. Um, uh, I'd, I'm being very frank about this, but I just think it's a huge mess. I think the number of web kits that we have in, in existence is just stupid. And I think that, um, I, what I understand is QT web kit used to be a thing, but then web kit kind of got pissed off at the QT folks. I'm paraphrasing for the sake of being grumpy. Uh, the, the web kit guys kind of got a little grumpy with the QT guys. So then they said, this is no longer a supported port. And then so the QT guys had to um, start maintaining their own version of WebKit, which was out of date or whatever, and uh, didn't get imported frequently. And I think that when I was using it, it wasn't up to date. And uh, now they have an up-to-date version, a newer version, and they assure me that it's fixed. So instead of having QT just be QT, now we have just like version number 12 of WebKit versus the you know, iOS version versus the Android version versus the GTK WebKit versus the Google Chrome WebKit versus the just on and on babbling about the versions of WebKit. But anyway, you guys are great. Thank you for replying and letting me know the horrifying things that I was trying to keep out of my mind. Um, and something else happened too that you were, you were talking about. Oh, somebody was talking about OpenBSD support. And I thought that was great. Um, thank you for taking the time to write in about that. And it was really, you know, a, a big um, affirmation, I suppose, about using OpenBSD and some of kind of the empty arguments that are made about you using OpenBSD versus something like Red Hat. And I, I agree with what this listener was saying. And basically they were saying, like, if you buy any other commercial product and you go to get support, you're not going to get support. And at least with OpenBSD there are avenues where you can kind of email in or read up on archives and figure stuff out. And I tend to agree with that. Um, but if we did compare it to a commercial version of like Red Hat or anything like that, um, as a company, there are certain things in place that basically say you have to have a supported piece of hardware that you can call with SLAs in place to get hardware if a piece of hardware dies and you have to have support contracts with your software vendors so that if something happens to the software you can get support um, and it can't be a mailing list so um, sadly the um, the money makers of um, regulatory bodies uh, have had their say in this um, and I think if you want to have OpenBSD be a quote-unquote supported platform with telephone support and all that kind of stuff so that you can use it in your whatever regulated company, I think that it is almost viable because you can uh, buy consulting blocks from some of the um, OpenBSD developers and then there's other consultants listed on the OpenBSD site. So um, if you did need something more, I guess it kind of exists and Yes, I also agree with what you're saying about mailing lists and documentation and stuff like that. So anyway, I don't know where I was going with that, but thank you guys for that. And uh, 
it, it kind of made me grumpy because like I feel kind of bitter about buying a car and then going to get like, hey, this thing is messed up. No, 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 man. You got to let it break in. I'm like, listen, I know that this shouldn't be doing this. Oh, no, no, no. It's fine. We had a certified so-and-so, such-and-such inspect it. I'm like, listen, I know what it's doing and it's not right. And you basically are sold. The salesman is, you know, just touting thousands of dollars worth of value and you can't get $150 worth of, hey, I need to take this caliper off and um, replace the brake pads because it didn't bed in right and now it's junk or something. I'm just making that up. <laughs> so anyway, I, I think support contracts these days, whether it be cars or dishwashers or toasters or anything, are uh, an unfortunate waste of money most of the time. How weird would it be if you could call someone and get OpenBSD support? You can, right? Can Just we? go to the... Yeah, absolutely. Ooh. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, like, I'm listed on the OpenBSD support page if you call me and do, like, commercial support. Yeah. But maybe I'm just thinking of it differently, like, the way that you'd call Comcast. <laughs> just talk to, like, a level one guy, like, hey, I uh, have this problem. And he's like, okay, did you try rebooting the machine first? But, I mean, that's what I think... in and I'm not blowing smoke or being stupid about this. I think if I was able to call you and pay you $65 an hour to be able to telephone you with a question or two, that's of a huge value to me Yeah. because I mean, Comcast, you know, you go to call into time Warner cable or something and you're going to blow an hour sitting on hold. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to get somebody who is going to gather information they may or may not be able to escalate this particular problem to someone who can fix it. And you can spend two or three or four or five days trying to get anything out of them. That's of no value to me. The problem doesn't get fixed. But if I can give you some money and say, like, I get to talk right to you and you fix my problems within a few hours with giving me suggestions, I think that is much more valuable than my experience with, you know, consumer goods or Red, <coughs> red Hat. <coughs> Uh, commercial support. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, like, I have uh, commercial OpenBSD support customers that are on support contracts, but I guess I think of them more as like I go and meet them in their office and check out their servers, and then I'm billing them every month, and they, uh, we talk on the phone and like email back and forth about upgrades and all this other stuff. I guess it's just funny to me to, to think of like some guy sitting in a cubicle with a headset on answering OpenBSD questions. Yeah. I, I'm, But I'm sure if somebody wanted that, you, you could sell them that. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. you could be like, all right, you get 10 hours uh, worth of time and I'll bill you whatever up front and you can use this whenever you want between the hours of eight and five. And if you want emergency support, it's a different kind of blocking structure and here's how it's going to work. And I mean, it could be done. So you I was new startup idea. Yeah. I, I was just thinking I could do that. <laughs> and you just uh, contract out all the open BSD developers to escalate yeah. issues too. That's right. Take a skim a little off the top. That's Ooh. right. Here it comes. I won't even feel greasy doing this. <laughs> you know, I wish uh, there were more places that you could uh, pay money for um, drivers to be written. 
Mm. Like the, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if it was a guy or a small company that wrote the, um, what became the IWM driver. Yeah. For, I think it was for Genua. Um, they wrote it or no, there was some tie in with NetBSD, like some company contracted them to write the driver for NetBSD and then they ended up writing it on OpenBSD mm-hmm. because it, and then it would easier to port it to NetBSD afterwards, or maybe I have that reversed. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, if I could pay someone like some dollars to write a driver and it wouldn't take like six months or a year, uh, I would do that and I would probably help raise some funds to do that too. I, I would love to do even, so even better than that. Cause I think what'll happen first is you'll realize how amazing folks like Jonathan Gray and Mark Ketnis and all those guys are is I think, uh, I would go in a, like a GoFundMe or uh Kickstarter or something and get like 20,000 bucks mm-hmm. and be like, all right, we have this uh, Radeon card, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, anyone listening. Uh, here's 20,000 bucks. Make this stupid hardware work with our, uh, with our, um, X. And I would be happy. And then people would start to realize, one, how much of an effort that really is to get something like a GPU to have hardware acceleration working. And two, it would kind of split the cost. So I didn't have to pay, you know, $500 every time I wanted a driver. We could have, you know, 50 or 100 people with that graphics card just chip in money until you have 20,000 bucks and then you'd be set. And I think everybody would win, but I'm drawing a line here. There's a difference between doing that to have an OpenBSD developer contract himself out than like the OpenBSD project as a whole um, doing work for people because you can't like make a donation and get work done from the project. It doesn't work like that. Right. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like, you know, you can donate to the foundation and say like, hey, it'd be great if we had this. And then it's like, well, if we find a developer that wants to do that, the foundation might um, pay them a stipend or whatever for however many months to work on it. But it's not like a, um, I don't think at least that it's like a contract thing. Like you have to finish this driver by this date if, mm-hmm. and then we'll pay you this amount. And if you don't finish the driver, we don't pay you like that kind of a thing. It's basically like, um, people approach the found or developers approach the foundation and say, Hey, I'd like to work on this thing. Can you pay me this amount of money for this many months while I, uh, so that I can eat and all that stuff. Yeah. We have some really awesome people who work on OpenBSD and, uh, they, they, their efforts need to be, um, supported and financially and through the community. So, Anyway, on that sentimental note, I think that's uh that that was actually kind of an interesting thing to talk about the um, open source social side of of this software. We didn't have any of this planned, so yeah. Actually, I have one more uh, thing. If there's anybody listening that is like an electrical engineer or you're good at like designing schematics or something, I have a request and I will pay you money for it. I need a card made or like designed and then like print one of them so that I can have it. And then you can, I don't know, go sell it on eBay or something. It's a card that would fit in the weird, uh, PCI interface thing that is on, uh, the newer MacBooks. that would like, you would plug the card into this weird slot. Cause it's like a weird proprietary slot and I'll link to the 
I'll put it in the show notes, the, a link to like the picture of it. So it would be a card that you slide in that slot and then it has its own uh, interface on that card that you can plug a normal wireless, uh, like the really tiny cards that they have now, like yeah. the IWM cards basically, um, that you can plug into that and then the it will do all the magic to convert those signals to normal uh so basically, so you can run like an Intel wireless card on a MacBook. Nice. Because on, I found a website that makes the reverse so that you can plug the, the Broadcom wireless card that fits into that weird adapter into a normal PCI, like mini PCI slot so that you can run like a Hackintosh or whatever. Uh, so you can run like the OSX provided Broadcom drivers for that weird piece of hardware mm-hmm. on your Dell or whatever, but I want the reverse because I want to run an Intel wireless card on my MacBook so I can use OpenBSD on it. Yeah. So if anyone's out there and they want to take this project on, uh, let me know how much it'll cost. <laughs> you should make like a business venture with it. Well, like, you know, if you want to design, if somebody wants to design it and then sell it, I can't imagine there's going to be too many people buying it. But um, right. you can retain all the rights to it. I just want you to make one version that works for my laptop that <laughs> I will carry with me forever. Uh, and you can do whatever you want with it. Nice. So on that note, I think that's all we have for this episode. Yes? Yeah, definitely, for sure. Guys, keep writing in. Uh, your emails and comments are great, and I really appreciate them. Uh, we've had really just a resounding uh, wave of support from all of you. Thank you so much. You guys are great listeners, and we will keep uh, putting together podcasts as best we can. And uh, if tonight's episode was weird or strange, just understand <laughs> that we have real lives too, and we have children who teethe and jobs that are demanding, and uh, sometimes we don't always get to put as much time into the things we love as we'd like. So keep sending in ideas, keep uh, commenting, and let us know what you like, and let us know what you want to hear about. Yep, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM and subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at Garbage.FM. Brandon, where can people find you? Yep, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod. And I'm also on Google Plus if you'd like to reach out to me on there. And I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS.